Today's Bible readings come from Acts 1, verse 6 to 11, and Colossians 1, verse 15 to 20. So I'll start with Acts 1. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father had Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing up towards heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, everyone. Um, Zach, what a guy. Um, Okay, so I just can't get over that last scripture. Every time I read it, it's always like, wow. Okay, so... It's been one year since I last spoke. Um, Joel asked me to speak again, my annual speaking. Um, If you're around, you you might remember I spoke about the resurrection. So um, there's one part of the message where I made a comment about the significance of the ascension of Jesus going uh, into the heavens and what it means for the church. But then I stopped there and I said, we'll save that for another time. So, this is that other time. <laughs> um, you, can find, you can find that message on our podcast if you want. But basically, in short, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the pivotal moment to which all of our faith and beliefs as Christians hinge on. No, no big deal. Um, no, it, it matters because it proves Jesus is who he claimed to be the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. Uh, It's the moment that Jesus defeated sin and death and provided a way for us to be reconciled to God. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So maybe maybe let that sink in for a second. If you don't, acknowledge and believe the resurrection of Jesus, Paul says, your faith is futile. So it's, yeah, it's kind of a big deal. 
um, acknowledging the resurrection as the pivotal event within the world. We see the world has begun to be transformed and invited into God's redemptive new creation. And this leads us as the body, as the church, to announce Jesus as Lord. And we live this out through many different beautiful ways. Again, if you're intrigued and want to know more on that, that's the previous message. So there's another important event that happens shortly after Jesus' resurrection, and it's the ascension. Um, did you? Oh, no, don't worry. I was wondering if there was a thing that said the ascension. Um, I didn't ask for it. Um, okay, so <laughs> recently at work, I was talking with a colleague. Let's, let's call her Bev. So Bev mentioned hearing on the news something uh, about something controversial um, recently that a prominent religious leader did. Um, and the conversation headed towards Bev um, explaining that she was actually losing faith in religious institutions herself. Um, growing up a fairly strict Roman Catholic background, she admitted it was a core part of who she was. Um, but this was not the only occasion where Bev um, had explained this sentiment to me, that despite feeling like her identity was rooted in her faith, she could not help but notice the contradictions in how this faith was or wasn't being acted out around the world. So for Bev, her faith and her identity were being pulled apart. Um, okay, Michael, what's this got to do with the ascension? Um, and why does it matter? So, you see, the ascension matters because it's the moment when Jesus returned to the heavens and took his place at the right hand of God the Father. This event is significant because it confirms Jesus' divinity and authority over all creation right now. So, in Ephesians uh, 1, 20-22, Paul says, He, God, raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. I'm not going to go into the grand theological uh, and biblical depths of the ascension because there's so much you get pulled out with all the, the words. And, um, but more so, I'm going to talk about what it means for us uh, as the church, as humans, and what happens if we ignore the ascension. Um, in the book, which I mentioned in the last message, Surprise by Hope, um, which is all about the resurrection, N.T. Wright says, What happens when you downplay or ignore the ascension? The answer is the church expands to fill the vacuum. If Jesus is more or less identical with the church, that is, uh, if that is talk about Jesus can be reduced to talk about his presence within his people rather than his standing over against them and addressing them from elsewhere as their Lord, then we have created a high road to the worst kind of triumphalism. Now I can feel the thoughts coming out of your brains what on earth is triumphalism? <laughs> Don't worry, I, I looked it up. Um, it's the, it can be defined as excessive exaltation over one's success or achievements, i.e. looking at our own efforts first. So when we look at our own efforts first, we lose sight 
of Jesus as Lord and his authority. When we lose sight of Jesus as Lord, our desire for control begins to seep in. We begin to strive and do things in our own authority, in our own strength. We may think we are acting as a body, but what is a body without its head? You see, perhaps what part of my uh, part of what my colleague Bev was observing was people who claimed to be led by Jesus or a higher power, but instead were effectively presenting themselves flawed under their own authority. N.T. Wright continues, This indeed is what 20th century English liberalism has always tended towards. By compromising with rationalism and trying to maintain that talk of the ascension is really talk about Jesus being with us everywhere, the church has effectively presented itself with its structures and hierarchy and customs and quirks instead of presenting Jesus as its Lord and itself as the world's servant, as Paul puts it. He's referring to 2 Corinthians 4, 5, where it says, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. So then, Michael, you may ask, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? I don't want you to do anything. That's my point. I'm flawed. You are flawed. We are all sinners. But you know what? There is one who has defeated sin. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. Part of Christian belief is to find out what is true about Jesus and let that challenge our culture. Our mission statement as a church is, what is it? Anyone other than Joel? I'll give you a hint. It's on a giant pink sign at the back there. It's, It's to know Jesus and demonstrate his love together. Nathan knew it. No. <laughs> okay, so in order to demonstrate his love and to do it together, we need to remind ourselves of the idea of Jesus being in charge, not only in heaven but also on earth, not in some ultimate future but also in the present. Now, maybe I'm preaching to the choir here, I don't know, but I know for a fact that this is an area I need constant reminding of. Um, So if you feel challenged at all here, know that I'm equally challenged, if not more challenged right now. Um, But how can we do this? What does it it look like? Well, we can start uh, by realigning our focus onto Jesus. The lamb that was slain sitting on the throne. Lord of the cosmos. I love, I love that title, Lord of the Cosmos. Um, cosmos being everything. So who is Jesus? Let's, let's get to know him. The scripture that, that Zach read so wonderfully at the beginning, Colossians 1.15. I'll read it again. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, 
the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I got goosebumps again. There, it's, I like that scripture. There, okay, so it's important to remember that the human being, Jesus, who ascended into heaven, is in his fully embodied risen state. So it's the same Jesus that went up to his disciples and showed his scars um, on his body, reminding us uh, of his willingness to suffer and die for us so that we can know he has not abandoned humanity in his exaltation, but he's taken it up with him into glory. He is the same Jesus who walked among us, taught us, healed us, and died for us, but now in a glorified state. This, this is Jesus, Lord of the cosmos. Um, let's talk more about Lord of the cosmos. The concept of Jesus as Lord of the cosmos has um, far-reaching implications for the church's mission. Firstly, it enables us to see our work from that cosmic perspective. Our mission goes beyond the mere salvation of individual souls. So we are called to participate in the restoration of all things under the Lordship of Christ, seeking to bring God's kingdom to every aspect of human life and creation. Secondly, the, the idea of Jesus as Lord of the cosmos gives us confidence in our mission. We are not alone in our work, for Jesus is with us. He is the one who ultimately brings about the transformation we seek. This gives us the courage to speak truth to power, to work for justice in the face of oppression, and to proclaim the good news of the gospel with boldness. Finally, the idea of Jesus as Lord of the cosmos gives us a hope for the future. We have the assurance that one day Jesus will return and establish his reign over all things. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. We can have confidence that as we continue to work for the restoration of all things under his lordship, that our work is not in vain, and that one day all things will be made new under his lordship. Okay, that's great, Michael. Um, but what, what, do we do, what do we do when this image of Jesus doesn't quite align with what we feel in our hearts? Or it doesn't quite align with what we see in the world? What if it doesn't align with what we see in this church or in our own lives? How do we respond? Sometimes we don't have the answers. Sometimes there are circumstances where the best response is to lament and pray. But what? What do we pray? Remember how earlier I said we need to find out what's true about Jesus and let that challenge our culture? Well, maybe that's a good starting point. We can start by reading God's Word to find out who God says He is. We can ask God to show us who He is, to transfer, transform our whole hearts to truly reflect who He is. But why do we need transformation of our hearts and how do we even pray for that? I don't know about you, but my heart is not always in the right place. If I always prayed at, uh, out of my heart, as is, I wouldn't get very far past praying for my job or 
aka to feed my materialism, or whatever other areas of my life I'm trying to control. Maybe some of you can relate. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this great quote about this. He says, if we are to pray right, perhaps it's quite necessary that we pray contrary to our own heart. Not what we want to pray is important, but what God wants us to pray. The richness of the Word of God ought to determine our prayer, not the poverty of our own heart. Wow. I love that last line. The richness of the Word of God ought to determine our prayer, not the poverty of our own heart. Speaking of Bonhoeffer, there's a lovely little book he wrote um, called Psalms, the Prayer Book of the Bible. Um, and he, he highlights that for many ancient Jews, including Jesus, the praying out of Scripture was commonplace, um, or common practice, I should say. And so we can actually follow that example. Um, let me ask you something. Do you ever find yourself frustrated at the state of the world or the state of the church? Have you ever found yourself in a difficult situation, like properly difficult, borderline, you can't suffer through the agony anymore kind of difficult? Well, the Bible is full of lamentations that we can pray out. From that Bonhoeffer book I just mentioned, he says, The lamentation psalms have to do with that complete fellowship with God, which is justification and love. But not only is Jesus Christ the goal of our prayer, he himself also accompanies us in our prayer. He who has suffered every want and has brought it before God has prayed for our sake in God's name. Not my will, but yours be done. For our sake he cried on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is Psalm 22, by the way. Now, what, now we know that there is no longer any suffering on earth in which Christ will not be with us, suffering with us and praying with us. Christ, the only helper. There is no suffering on earth in which Christ is not with us, suffering with us and praying with us. And as you cry out, praying God's word back to him, you can, find his, you can also find his promises and you can pray that over each other, over others. And there are also times when you're praying with each other where you can just lament and lament together. Um, there's a Psalm 130, it says, Out of the depths cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. So we should pray for each other. But there's, there's much more I could go into about praying for each other, but Maybe we'll save that for another time. Wink, wink. Yeah. Setting up next year. Okay. No, so you, you can actually, yeah, you can actually have clarity about who God is. Allowing the Word of God to bring clarity about who God is is so important for us. Remember, um, Pastor Joel spoke a while, back, a while back, I think it was from Joel chapter 2. Rend your heart and not your garments. Why? For the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, steadfast in love. Long of nose, I remember, um, was one translation. Okay, so for, who, is, who is God like? God is like Psalm 84:11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. He bestows favor and honor. No good thing does the Lord withhold 
from those who walk uprightly. If you've been following God for any amount of time, you've probably had what um, Sam Gibson from Church of the City describes as confrontational moments, or in his accent, confrontational moments, um, where you might see something that feels like it contradicts with your idea of God. Um, but rather than just moving on to something else, you can actually lean into that confusion. Like, you can read that scripture I just read, and you can pray, Lord, your word says you do not withhold good, but I feel like good is being withheld. Help me here, God. We can press into that confidence of who God's word says he is, and you can pray that out in faith. Now, I have to confess, I'm personally, I'm not really actually that great at doing this in the past, so it's something that I'm trying to do. It's something that I'm trying to include more of the Word of God in my prayers, um, just as Jesus demonstrated. So, you do not have to have confusion about who He is, um, but you can have clarity and a united heart. If we don't address these areas of confusion, of doubt, of disappointment, if we don't know how to lean into the Word of God in those seasons, what happens is we, we kind of wall it off. We can tuck it away in some corner of our heart. And this, what this can lead us to is it can lead you to this stale, boring version of faith which God never intended for you to have. Hebrews 11 says, Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is not wishful thinking. Faith is not blind optimism. Faith is confidence. Faith is conviction. Faith is knowing. So we're realigning our focus back onto Jesus. We're remembering that he died for our sins, resurrected and ascended. And in remembering this, it gives us a cosmic perspective of his kingdom. So this leads us to, to seek out truth in his word so we can have a confidence in our mission and it gives us a hope for the future. When we have that focus of who he really is, we can let go of that triumphalism. That We can stop looking at our own efforts first. N.T. Wright again says, the, to embrace the ascension is to heave a sigh of relief. <sighs> to give up the struggle to be God, and with it the inevitable despair of our constant failure. As I was preparing for this message, I felt like um, the Holy Spirit was calling us to pray for those in this church and in our wider community who have been trapped by the voice of performance. We live in a culture that honors performance so much. In Zechariah 4, it says, well, there's this imagery of King uh, Zerubbabel. He's tasked with rebuilding the temple, and God highlights to him that success will only come not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And there might be people here today, and you've been trying to follow the Lord, with all your might and all your power for years. And it's just leaving you exhausted and tired. Titus 2 says that the grace of God that offers salvation also teaches us to reject worldly desires and live godly lives 
So we can actually ask God for a grace to follow him in our lives. Not by might, not by power, but by his spirit. Um, yeah, why don't we pray? Let's close in prayer. Uh, it says in John 1, All who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Lord, I ask that we would receive what you have for us as sons and daughters. Lord, I pray that you would silence the voice of performance. Lord, I ask for the fresh invitation to humble ourselves before you and to say that we just need grace to follow you, God. Give us a grace to be trained in areas of righteousness in our life, a grace to love your word, a grace to tremble at your voice, a grace to hunger after you. Your word says you oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. We invite this into our own lives right now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.